Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hello, and welcome to Pickled Parables. My name is Bradley. I was invited to be a part of this show by Hunter. And like Hunter, um, I'm also a youth pastor, and I'm a substitute teacher, so I spend a lot of time working with kids. And I want to share with you a message today that I've called A Biblical Theology of Poverty and Wealth. When I was in college... I had the opportunity to visit Europe, and one of those trips, me and my friends took an overnight bus from Germany to Paris, and we we arrived, we wandered around the city in the dark because it got in early in the morning until we finally found a mall that was open, and we hung out there until all the restaurants and everything opened up again. But when we were in Paris, we got to walk the streets and see Champs-Élysées. We got to go to the Louvre, the famous art museum. We got to see the Arc de Triomphe. And so that was one way that we got to city, to see the city. We were walking its streets. But something else that we did that totally changed my view was we took a trip to the Eiffel Tower. And at the Eiffel Tower, when we went all the way to the top, I saw a totally different perspective on Paris. Paris stretches as far as the eye can see from the Eiffel Tower. The city's just unbelievably huge. And so, there are two ways to see a city. You can see it walking the streets, or you can see the view from above. And seeing it from above is a different way to know the city entirely. Just ask my friend Daniel Hurst, who does aerial photography professionally. When we look at Bible passages and study them verse by verse, we can see certain things more clearly, just like walking the streets of the city. But today, we will be taking an Eiffel Tower view or a helicopter view of a biblical topic so that we can notice the arc of the teaching in the Bible as a whole. This is the ultimate goal of biblical theology, is to look at a theme and trace it and see how it goes throughout the whole Bible, and it can help us to get large, big-picture overviews of topics. So today, we will be tracing the theme of wealth and poverty through the Bible to see what the Bible says about wealth and as an example of biblical theology. Starting at the beginning, when God created the world He made the Garden of Eden, and he put Adam and Eve there. He gave them plenty of food from the trees in the garden. But it seemed that the abundance of Eden went beyond that. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 10, we see that there is other things in the garden beyond just the tree and its fruit. So again, Genesis 2, starting in verse 10, it says this, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. 
The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. So while describing the rivers that flow from Eden, we see gold, resin, and precious stones as well. It seems that even from the beginning of creation, God's plan was for humanity to enjoy an abundance, and an abundance beyond just food, an abundance of gold, resin, precious stones, things that are beautiful and wonderful. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve sin, and creation was tainted. Many things that were designed to be good gifts from God were changed and bent, and wealth is one of them. As a result, the Bible as a whole gives us a dual view of wealth. When things are rightly ordered, wealth is a blessing from God, and poverty a punishment on the wicked and lazy. However, when people place their trust in wealth instead of the Lord, it becomes an idol. Thus, in a sinful world, the wicked can become wealthy and even oppress the righteous, plunging them into poverty, while the wicked only grow their own wealth. Genesis begins to build the biblical mosaic of wealth by focusing on its function as a blessing of God. There is so much depth to the Bible. As I studied this subject, I was amazed to see how many little stories spoke to wealth, especially in the Old Testament. In most of Genesis, wealth is seen as God's blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham descendants, a great name, and God's blessing. Abraham did not see the total fulfillment of these promises, but God's blessing was demonstrated through material wealth for Abraham. For the rest of Genesis, the patriarchs are blessed as a demonstration of God's blessing and the promise of Abraham on his chosen people. But Abraham, like all of us, was a mixed bag. He lied about his wife Sarah being his sister, not once, but twice, yet the Lord blessed him. We also see that he was a generous man. When he and his nephew Lot could no longer live next to each other, he gave Lot first choice of the land, the land God had promised to him. And yet he said, Lot, you choose. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. In another story, he refused to take plunder after winning a battle against an alliance of kings when he rescued Lot. The, defeat, the formerly defeated kings offer him a share of the loot when Abraham comes to their rescue, but he refused to take anything beyond the food that the men had eaten because he had made a promise to the Lord, and he did not want these men to have the opportunity to say that they were the ones to make him wealthy. As I mentioned with Abraham, God blesses even despite sins in Genesis. We see Isaac, who follows in his father's footsteps in claiming that his wife is his sister, and immediately after that, we see that he plants and reaps a hundredfold. Thus, the Lord's blessing is immediately following his sin. 
Similarly, Jacob lies and cheats his way to wealth. Yet, even Jacob later recognized that God was the ultimate source of his wealth. Wealth was absolutely God's blessing and was seen as proof that the Lord was with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in different passages. So does this mean that God doesn't care for the poor because they do not have his financial blessing? This is not the case at all, as the following story shows. When God sent Hagar and Ishmael away from Abraham, we see this happening. In Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water skin the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. As she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. So when Hagar and Ishmael have nothing to their name except an empty water skin and a little food, God steps in and protects and preserves them, even though Ishmael was not the chosen son of Abraham. As we move on to the book of Exodus, we see that when Israel left Egypt, God blessed them with wealth. Again, continuing this theme of wealth as God's blessing. He called the people to ask their neighbors for various jewelry and gold and silver, and the people gave it to them. So they plundered the Egyptians as they left. But we also see, he says, in the law, God told Israel he would bless them richly with material blessings if they followed him. But if they did not, then he would impoverish them. This does not, again, mean that the poor deserve to be poor. Instead, built into this very same law, God created many laws to look after the poor. We're going to turn to a familiar passage in Exodus chapter 20. And this is the Ten Commandments, but it's really interesting here because note who is commanded to rest on the Sabbath. We're going to be in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animal, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Note that in verse 10 we see your manservant, your maidservant, and the alien within your gates, all people that were likely poor 
and not as capable were all commanded to rest as well. This was not a day to make your servant do all the work for you so you could rest. It was a day where even the servants and the poor were to rest. Just a couple chapters over in Exodus 22, starting in verse 21, we read this. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, they will cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So we see the Lord cares about these vulnerable people, and Israel was supposed to live in such a way that they took care of the poor. They were not to say that the poor deserve it or that it's God's punishment on them, but instead, as God's people, they were to share in the blessings of wealth that the Lord had given them. We're going to turn to the next book. Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse 9, we see some more laws where God says things like this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather to the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Jump down to verse 13. He says this, do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. So we see that the Lord cares for his people. He tells them to leave the leftovers of their grain and their grapes for the poor. In the biblical book of Ruth, we see that Ruth is a poor foreigner and she takes advantage of this. The righteous man, Boaz, does exactly this, leaving some of his fields, even far beyond what the law asks, to provide for the poor so that they can come and have food for themselves. The law also gives things like the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee, which helped the poor by limiting the time a Hebrew could be a slave to only seven years, the canceling of debts, and returning land to its original owners. If you are in a culture like this that's agrarian, land is everything. So if you have to sell your land, that would normally be game over for your financial future. It would be very difficult to get land back, to earn enough money to buy it back. But instead, the Lord set it up so that the year of Jubilee, all the land would return to its original owners. So even those who were poor would have their land returned to them. We also see that the poor could offer less expensive gifts at the temple, so cost would not keep the poor people from sacrificing to the Lord. When we get to Deuteronomy 17, there are some laws and principles to guide what a true godly king should look like. And one of the warnings is that they should not, requ- should not acquire lots and lots of wealth. When we get to the king of the king of Israel 
the King Solomon, we see he's a divided example. In one moment, he is so generous, he offers a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord, a costly, costly sacrifice. But we also see that he gained too much wealth. The Lord blesses him with wealth, but there's a certain point in which it clearly becomes too much, and this is why. When you read the Deuteronomy 17 passage, it says that kings should not gain too much wealth, should not gain horses, and should not have lots of wives. And yet, one passage on Solomon says exactly that. It talks about the number of horses that he imported and chariots he had. It talks about all the foreign women that he married, and it talks about how much wealth he gained, basically going down the checklist and marking off all of the things the king was not supposed to do. As we move forward in the Bible and we get to the book of Psalms, we see that the Lord hears the cry of the oppressed poor. Psalms writes about this righteous poor, people who do not have wealth in this life, but have faith in God and thus have spiritual riches. When we move to the wisdom book of Proverbs, wealth is also seen as the ideal So much of Proverbs focuses on how life should work. And so wealth is seen as the in the ideal as the product of hard work and righteousness. However, even in the midst of Proverbs and other wisdom books, they point out the fact that wealth is not most important. Proverbs 15.16 says this, Better a little with fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Similarly, when you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, we see at the very end, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So Ecclesiastes says that what's most important is faithfulness to the Lord, and it even ends with a warning of judgment to those who do wrong. And that's the perfect segue to bring us into the prophets, because you have Proverbs, which focuses on the ideal, and on the flip side, the prophets often deal with the sad realities. The prophets spoke for God to the people of Israel, and many of them called Israel and Judah to repentance. Their call was not a new call or a call to different rules and laws, but instead it was a reference to the law that the Lord had given Israel already. God had promised to bless Israel if they were faithful and to curse them if they were not. Over and over, the prophets called out the people for taking advantage of the poor. Their treatment of the poor was one of the many reasons that God was going to punish them and eventually send them into exile. So we see that in the passage we read earlier where God talked about if you mistreat the poor, he would punish them. And so a quintessential passage that shows us this is Micah 6.8, and he says, the prophet Micah writes, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk 
humbly with your God. So he calls on them to walk humbly before God, but also to do justice, to be merciful to those around them. But in the prophets, wealth is more than just a negative thing. Wealth is not just what the oppressors have gained by mistreating the people that are underprivileged. But instead, we see in a couple passages we're going to look at here, in Amos 9.13, it says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. So here we see this this abundance that is so clearly present when God is blessing his people. He is blessing them abundantly. If you turn back to the book of Joel, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, we see something similar where the Lord says this, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the acacias. So there was a coming time of great blessing and wealth for Israel. God's plan for mankind to live in abundance, as in Eden, will happen in the future for God's people. As we get to the New Testament, the gospel writer Luke talks more about wealth than any other New Testament author in his two-part book, Luke and Acts, which are meant to be read together. We see that this is definitely a focus of Luke, is to talk about wealth and poverty far more than the other gospel writers. So we're going to turn to Luke 1.53. And in Luke 1.53, we get to see this. We're going to focus on this part of a song. This is the song that the Virgin Mary sings when the angel tells her that she would give birth to this special child. She sings this beautiful song. I would absolutely recommend you check it out in Luke 1, starting in verse 46. But we're just going to focus on verse 53. Mary says this, He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Mary's song sounds like it's straight out of the prophets, as she praises God as the one who looks after the pious poor. In an account completely unique to the Gospel of Luke, we also learn that Jesus grew up poor. When his parents, Mary and Joseph, take him to the temple to be circumcised, and they offer a sacrifice, they offer the sacrifice allowed for the poor person, two birds. The whole corpus of Luke Acts is full of these examples and parables showing right and wrong ways to use wealth. So I'm going to give you a quick list of positive and negative examples, and then we'll look at a couple others. So if you want to write these down and look them up later, I would highly recommend it. We see in Luke 8, 2 through 3, there are female supporters of Jesus' ministry. They are not mentioned in any other gospel, but Luke mentions them, that they support Jesus' ministry out of their own means. 
there is a parable that is a negative example of the rich barn builder in Luke 12, 13 through 21. We see the positive example of the shrewd manager in Luke 16, 1 through 9, and immediately following it contrasts with the greed of the Pharisees that's shown in Luke 16, 10 through 15. We also see the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, where Lazarus, the poor man, is seen as the positive figure, and the rich man who does not take care of him is the negative figure in Luke 16, 19 through 31. And finally, we see in Luke 21, 1 through 4, the famous story of a poor widow that only has two small coins to her name, but she gives them to the temple. And Jesus says that she gives more than all these other people that put in much greater sums of money. Let's look at another example. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And in this passage, we see this. A certain ruler asked him, meaning Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. So we see this rich ruler that comes to him, but this, these riches are an idol to him. And it's interesting because just a few verses after this, we see in chapter 19, starting in verse 1, we see a foil here. We see a person who treats his wealth differently than this rich ruler. And it's not the person that you would expect. Starting in Luke 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the, Lord, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So there are two men. This ruler comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives him a direct command to tell him how to be saved, and he ignores it. In contrast, Lazarus is not prompted by Jesus at all, but freely offers to give up what he owned 
and to make right any of his wrongs. This rich ruler misses out on eternal life, but Lazarus finds it through Christ. We're going to turn now to Acts chapter 4 to see how Luke continues to develop this idea of wealth and poverty and what that does for the believers. Starting in Acts chapter 4 verse 36, we see this. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So we see here two examples. Barnabas who is rich, a landowner, Ananias and Sapphira, who are rich landowners, and yet Barnabas is generous and is praised for his faith, and Ananias and Sapphira are killed because of their evil and their lying. It seems like a harsh punishment, but we see here that that it is very clear that they were lying to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God, And Peter calls them out. And so when we look at the rich and the poor, there are people on both sides. We see the rich Zacchaeus, we see the rich Barnabas, and they use their money well, and they're blessed by the Lord. They are praised for that. But we also see that wealth can be used in terrible ways by those who are greedy, like Ananias and Sapphira had done. So wealth is not the determiner of righteousness. It is not that the poor are always righteous and that the wealthy are always evil idolaters. But we do see that Jesus gives warnings that wealth is dangerous. But wealth alone is not evil. From here, we're going to look at the generosity of the early church. So turn back to Acts chapter 2. In verses 44 and 45, we read this. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. We also see in Acts chapter 4 a similar statement in verses 32 to 35, which read, 
All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need." This verse 34 is unbelievable to me. There were no needy persons among them. Here, the church was in miniature what God's coming kingdom will be like. A kingdom with no needy people. Now, this is not communism. This is not a forced government system where the people had to give up their possessions to care for the poor. Instead, They wanted to. Their hearts were changed by their faith in Jesus Christ, and it made them want to be generous. We should be like this early church, these people that were willing to give up what they owned to help the poor. At my church here in Oregon, we just recently finished a series on Revelation. We read of the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, and we know that when Jesus finally defeats Satan, mankind will again live in the blessings of abundance like God created for Eden. Mankind was meant to enjoy abundance. And so as we look, we see Wealth and poverty traced throughout the whole Bible, and books kind of come at it from different angles to give us this complete and beautiful picture. So in summary, wealth and poverty are themes woven through the whole of Scripture. The book of Genesis reveals the abundance mankind was intended to enjoy as the Lord's blessing, while also demonstrating how sin has tainted man's view of wealth. In the law, God instructed Israel to live generously and care for the poor, promising his people blessings for their faithfulness. The wisdom books remind the the readers that the righteous and the hardworking should receive wealth in a rightly ordered system, but poverty is not always deserved. Ultimately, fear of the Lord is most important. The prophets often reprimanded the people of Israel and Judah for their mistreatment of the poor, and they even cited it as a reason for the looming judgment that came upon them, while also pointing to the future, to an abundance of a coming restored Israel. In the New Testament, Luke-Acts warns against the dangers inherent in wealth, while showing many examples of wealth used rightly. The use of wealth demonstrates the true object of one's faith. But beyond generosity, Luke's description of the church is a foretaste of the future kingdom. Like Eden, and fulfilling the promises of restored Israel, the people of God's coming kingdom will be free from sin and experience the unrivaled wealth and abundance God has always intended for mankind, yet without that wealth and abundance twisting their hearts and pulling them away from God. Instead, it will point them to a greater love and worship and desire for God. As we look at this whole arc of wealth in the Bible, 
I think there's some clear points of application for us as Christians. Number one, we should view wealth as a blessing from God and praise Him for it. Like Jacob, we need to recognize that our wealth, anything we have, is not our own. It is God's gift. As Israel was commanded to, we as God's people should look and we should care for the poor. This should happen in two levels. Number one, as a church, as a whole, as the early church did. And number two, also as individuals as well. So my challenge to you is pray and see if there are opportunities to help those in need for you as an individual or by supporting a ministry that does so, or maybe even for going to your church and saying, hey, I think that we should support those in need in this way or in that way. I think we also see that both rich and poor can honor God with what they have. So don't give in to the temptation of saying, I would be generous if I had more. Or, if I was wealthier, then I could really honor God with my wealth. Instead, everybody on the spectrum from the poor widow to the rich Zacchaeus can honor the Lord with how you use what you've been given. So I want to ask you to look at yourself, to go prayerfully before the Lord and say, How can I honor you, Lord, with what you have given me? And finally, And most importantly, we recognize that the heart where you've placed your faith is more important than money. So I want to close with this. I want to ask you, where is your heart at? Have you put your trust in the Lord? Or is your trust in wealth and entertainment and something else? Our world surrounds us with idols, and it's so easy to trust in things that are not the Lord. But I encourage you to stop and ask yourself, have you put your faith in Christ? You cannot pay for your sins on your own, but Jesus has paid for sin already. He came and he lived this example, this generous life, giving of His himself and of his time, even to the point of dying on a cross for our sins. And all he asks is that we put our trust in him, put our faith in him, and his sacrifice will cover our sins. If you haven't done that, I would ask you to to stop and consider, what are you trusting in? Because right here, right now, whenever you're listening to this podcast, you can put your faith in Christ. And I'll tell you what, Your life will change, but like Zacchaeus, you will not want to turn back. His heart was changed in a moment, and your heart can be changed in a moment too. I'm going to go ahead and close out this podcast with prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how much it teaches us about life and about following you and what it means to be godly. Lord, thank you that we do not have to be rich to have our hearts right with you. We do not have to be rich to be generous. Lord, thank you for the examples you've given us in your word of generosity. Thank you also for the warnings to keep us from making riches and wealth an idol. Lord, I pray that you would help us, first of all, to put our trust and faith in you. And Lord, then to be thankful for what you've given us and to use what wealth you've given us to bless others.
Thank you again for who you are and for the sacrifice of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Pickled Parables. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.